This is the podcast by The Straits Times. This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the Golden Triangle, where Myanmar, Thailand and Laos meet, was once notorious for heroin, but is now the methamphetamine production center for the entire Indo-Pacific region. Meth from the Golden Triangle finds its way to Bangladesh and India and to Japan, Korea and Australia. The business is run by transnational organized crime syndicates who exploit weak law enforcement in murky border areas far from the reach of central state authorities. And of course, the vast sums of money they make is used to corrupt any state authority that may stand in the way. Now, concern over this has been growing for a number of years, and the State Department and the U.S. Treasury have in fact named and sanctioned individuals, so it's not as if nobody knows who is running these syndicates. And this is not just about drugs. This is about wildlife, human trafficking, money laundering, often through casinos, and it destabilizes the legitimate authority of governments. Today, I'm joined by Jason Tower, who is country director for Myanmar at the United States Institute for Peace. Jason, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me on, First, let me ask you a question that has been occupying my mind as we have watched this developing over the years. Is this a security risk for legitimate states to have these enclaves which are within their territories yet seemingly untouchable for various reasons, armed forces, money, and so forth? Is it a serious security risk? I would say absolutely. Um, first of all, at the United States Institute of Peace, our entry point for looking at a lot of these issues is going to be around the implications for conflict. And in a space like um, Myanmar, having militia groups with connections to transnational criminal organizations that are able to bring in vast sums of, of capital, uh, ramp up uh, illicit economies, all of these things are going to have uh, major impacts when it comes to conflict issues. So getting to security, um, definitely I see a lot of risks here. I see risks for uh, sovereignty, um, particularly in the case of Myanmar where um, these militia groups are expanding in terms of their size and in terms of their influence, um, but also at the same time, many of the transnational criminal actors that are coming in are taking over, uh, to some extent, um, territories in these different places. And I think um, if you look at some of the developments that have happened in Laos, uh, developments in Cambodia, developments in Myanmar, you'll see a similar sort of, of pattern of um, transnational criminal groups coming in and increasingly gaining more and more influence and control over territory uh, where they can really ramp up their illicit activities. So I would say that this is a security risk, not only for individual states, but for the region or really uh, at the global level. Right. So this consolidation of transnational criminal networks has long been recognized as a problem, just not just for the immediate region, but for the wider region. And I believe Myanmar's army, the Tatmadaw, recently finally made some moves to bring at least one area in Karen state bordering Thailand under some sort of control. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, this is something we've actually been uh, following quite, quite closely. Um, so... Uh, Really, the issue dates back to around uh, 2009, 2010, when essentially one of the uh, anti-government militia groups in the Thai-Myanmar border area struck a deal with the Myanmar military, the Tatmadaw, 
uh, to essentially uh, trade off um, with the Tatmadaw, uh, where it would get the rights to more or less pursue any form of business it wanted in that particular area in exchange for falling under the leadership of the Myanmar National Army. So essentially what this group, um, the Karen Border Guard Force led by uh, its commander Chitu did was it started introducing very rapidly um, a lot of uh, large scale um, casino projects into the area. But it framed these projects um, with Chinese uh, investors as being part of China's Belt and Road Initiative creating, I think, a lot of confusion for authorities in Myanmar and beyond. Um, billions of dollars of investments started to flow in, um, and it increasingly became clear that the investors behind these projects had very little to do with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative or with um, the Chinese state-owned enterprises, but instead um, were including fugitives, including the heads of uh, triads, uh, including the former head of the 14K triad. So a lot of criminal actors actually were being introduced into Karen State, um, you know, using the kind of the premise that they were building out part of the Belt and Road Initiative as, an ex as, as, as really a cover uh, to provide themselves with some legitimacy. Um, so what emerged were these large casino cities under the control of a militia group, um, which, of course, would also provide a space for a wide range of other illicit activities to um, be undertaken. Now, the Myanmar government started to become more aware of these issues in 2019 as uh, some media reports started coming out. Um, USIP also put out a couple of reports uh, looking into kind of the background of some of these investments and the implications for conflict, implications for governments and for, for sovereignty. And the government set up a commission to start to investigate what was going on, which was actually quite uh, remarkable to, to see that happen. Um, so in June of 2019, the, um, I'm sorry, June of 2020, the government uh, uh, did this, started this, this investigation. Um, and there'd been a series of uh, kind of in investigative trips uh, that the government carried out into the areas. I think one of the big problems, though, was that the border guard force, on the basis of its agreement, is not directly under the control of uh, government, nor is it um, under the control of civilian law. It's under control and reports to the military. So the... Uh, uh, civilian authorities repeatedly pointed to the need for the military to really look into these activities and investigate these activities. And that finally started to happen in December of this year, when the military essentially came in very forcefully into the uh, current areas and demanded the resignation of the leadership of this border guard force. Um, what has uh, ensued, though, is actually now a complicated set of negotiations that have um, played out between the leadership of this uh, armed group and the military. Um, and unfortunately, at the moment, it doesn't really seem like the uh, military's efforts have led to any major significant change in the status quo. So. Uh, you did see some movements towards resignation of the um, border guard force commanders, but 
later after negotiations, um, the uh, census that on the ground, um, the projects are going to continue. Um, I think there is the opportunity now though, to really push for this whole area to be brought under uh, the rule of law. I mean, that's something you haven't seen uh, happen, but there's a lot of um, impediments to this because of these historical issues of the way in which the military has approached um, different armed groups in um, not only Karen state, but across the, the country, um, really using the rights to engage in any form of business, you know, even giving rights to not have to be under civilian law to different armed groups uh, in exchange for uh, giving up arms and falling under the fold of the, the Tatmadaw. So I think there's really a need to look uh, systematically a lot at a lot of these issues, um, both from a vantage point of uh, nation building, um, but also for uh, from the perspective of how do we strengthen the rule of law and ensure that these spaces do not continue to uh, attract transnational criminals as they've uh, increasingly been doing over the past couple of years. So the problems, as we know, are rooted in history and ethnic armies controlling their own turf in grey areas on the border with China, deal-making between governments and local armies. It does seem as if governments are pretty powerless to take on some of these elements. If you look at the war state, for example, just to be practical, the war state has its own standing army. So what is the solution to this? I mean, I think any solution is going to have to be regional in nature um, because you know, on the one hand, um, there is very little uh, extension of uh, sovereignty or extension of Myanmar's national laws into those areas. It's hard for um, law enforcement even to access those areas. Um, so I think that, uh, that that is going to be a major challenge. What I think is interesting to look at, though, is that um, regardless of whether you're talking about the, the, the drugs, arms, or uh, the illegal illicit casinos, um, or money laundering for that matter, the networks that are involved in these activities, they're actually exploiting um, governance risks and gaps in many countries across the region in order to make this happen. Um, you know, for the projects in Karen State, um, they're using the internet connections in Thailand electricity in Thailand. Uh, one of them had been tapping into fintech in Singapore to set up a uh, payment application to try to transfer money across uh, borders and across boundaries. Um, some of the um, uh, investors that are coming into these different enclaves from uh, China, they purposely locate themselves in multiple region or multiple uh, places across the region in all three countries, Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia, and then try to make it unclear to law enforcement as to where any particular online casino operation is actually based. Um, I think beyond that, you have also problems of uh, poor management of citizenship and uh, nationality in many countries across the region, which um, for example, many of the transnational Chinese criminals who are investing in Karen State, uh, they've been able to somehow acquire passports and uh, citizenship in Cambodia, despite the fact that they were wanted fugitives in, uh, in China and that the Chinese authorities had been after them for many years. So 
I think that what is increasingly needed is a, an approach that looks at how can the region start to address some of these different governance gaps that are in place? How can you bring um, Thailand and Myanmar and Laos and Cambodia and other countries that are also involved in this together to look uh, more deeply at how are these transnational criminal networks exploiting all of these governance gaps and what are ways of uh, filling them in? Now, I think that there's some pockets of optimism that we can look at here and some things that we can really start to build off of. So I think, first of all, the fact that the Myanmar government has um, started to do, draw something of a line in the sand around the Karen State projects and has started to demand that the military um, and that these militia groups uh, follow the laws of Myanmar, I think that's a good sign. The fact that Myanmar further um, pointed out to China and asked China to clarify whether or not this project is part of its Belt and Road Initiative, um, that was also quite remarkable. And you saw China respond to that by actually coming out and saying, no, this is not part of the BRI and we'll try to be supportive of efforts to uh, address some of this illicit activity. I think if you get um, states where this activity is based to start to recognize uh, publicly what's happening and to start working together to try to find some solutions to these governance problems, you'll gradually start to close uh, up some of the space that's there for transnational crime to come in and build uh, more influence uh, within um, pockets of governance across the region that um, is really ultimately what enables these different uh, zones where you have illegal casinos, drugs, other sorts of things um, uh, moving. Mm -hmm. So do U.S. sanctions have any effect? I would say that um, they, they, they certainly do. Um, you know, if you look at uh, just issues of uh, money transfers globally, um, at some point, most transfers are going to have to go through a U.S. bank. So... I think that targeted sanctions against uh, some of the companies and some of the entities that are involved in um, these forms of activities are going to have an impact on uh, what they're doing because at the end of the day, many of them need to access um, that banking system. And then, of course, I think the other thing that sanctions do is it gets um, legitimate banks in the various countries um, where you have those sanctions also looking much more closely at um, the different sorts of financial transactions um, that are going on within country through um, their own banking systems. It gets them to start looking at their accounts a lot more closely because they know that if they uh, facilitate the wrong transaction, there's going to be some penalties for, for them as well. So, I think on one level, you've seen um, some of the sanctions have uh, a positive impact in, uh, in this direction. The other interesting thing, though, is that, you know, recently there were Treasury designations on um, one of the uh, actors that's involved, the transnational criminal actors that's involved in current state in particular, the former 14K leader, um, uh, Macau-based uh, uh, convicted criminal Wang Kukui, who is behind the Saishigang um, Industrial Zone project in Karen State. Uh, so there were sanctions put uh, on him in December of, of this year. And following the sanctions, what I thought was interesting was that um, 
uh, it prompted a discussion um, back in China uh, within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that was public. So the Speaker of the Foreign Ministry had to respond to questions as to one, whether or not this uh, criminal was a representative of the Chinese government. Uh, and two, it also made uh, very apparent in China that someone who has that status as a convicted triad leader um, is now backing this massive industrial zone in a, a, a space in collaboration with a militia group in, in Myanmar. So I think those sanctions also functioned to raise awareness of something that perhaps um, law enforcement, publics, others across the region didn't really have a strong sense of, um, uh, you know, that was playing out in, uh, in Myanmar. So uh, I think you do see these sanctions as being helpful on, um, uh, in, in several respects. And there's been another interesting development just days ago. One drug uh, kingpin, Sergi Lop, was arrested at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport as he was making his way to Canada. Sergi Lop is an ethnic Chinese but a Canadian citizen, and he is now awaiting extradition to Australia. So his syndicate called The Company is thought to account for as much as 70% of all the illegal drugs trafficked into Australia. So it is a very big arrest indeed. Uh, what do you, do you think this sends a good signal that uh, states can, you know, do the right thing and go after some of these kingpins? Yeah, I, I mean, I think on the, the, the positive side, it definitely shows that if you start to get uh, law enforcement cooperating, if you get states cooperating, it in fact will lead to some positive results. You know, one thing that I had observed, at least with uh, some of the developments I've been researching around the um, illegal casinos across the region is that often those who are uh, tracked or, or arrested by um, law enforcement tend to be people at the very bottom of the food chain. I mean, I think this is a very significant development that uh, Major Kingpin has in fact been, um, been arrested. Now, I think that, you know, the next steps of, uh, you know, prosecution and exactly how this will play out are important, but um, it does, I think, uh, send a strong signal that um, there is ways for states to collaborate and address uh, some of these issues around transnational crime. Now, that said, I do think that the arrest itself will probably lead to something of a, of a power vacuum because, of course, underneath um, this kingpin, you had many different networks who were all involved, um, not only in the, the drugs, but in many other forms of, of illicit activities. And so, um, you know, I think that this is probably not a moment uh, only for celebration, but also a moment for really uh, watching very closely developments um, when it comes to transnational crime, because I think, you know, clearly now there's going to be incentives for many other big players to start trying to position themselves to uh, take on more of a, of a market or build more influence. Um, so I think to the extent that, you know, maybe now is a good time to start bringing um, countries together from across the region to look more deeply at this form of illicit activity and to really think through, um, you know, the long-term game here in terms of if, um, we continue to allow some of these forms of uh, developments to, to move ahead, as you've seen happening in Karen State in Myanmar or in other parts of, of the region where um, these enclaves that tolerate transnational crime are getting larger and larger and more and more influential. 
what will the implications of that be for um, ASEAN in the future? What will the implications of that be for, for Myanmar in the future? So I think that um, this is really maybe something of a wake-up call and an opportunity now for um, uh, countries, maybe across ASEAN in particular, to start thinking about how they can work to address some of these gaps that are present in governance um, that have enabled these transnational criminal organizations to build up so much influence across the region. Right. Great perspective. Jason Tower, thank you very much for joining us today. Indeed, this is a challenge not just for individual countries, but for ASEAN, because this, the proliferation and the consolidation of transnational criminal networks affects the entire region and beyond. So it is a challenge that ASEAN also has to rise to. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Kosh. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.